And what we're going to do today, whenever we're in Exodus chapter 33 and 34, is a little bit of what we used to do whenever we would tuck Abby into bed when she was uh, little. We're going to look at some shadows. We're going to look at these things that kind of create a, 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 a picture, and it's a pretty dramatic picture that we're going to see. We're going to see these, these shadows, and, and what we're going to see is that these shadows can tell us a lot about who God is. It, it will tell us a lot about how he does things. But it's always an incomplete picture. You see, when we would do the, the, the shadow puppets, like you would see the shadow on the wall, and it would kind of give you a representation of what was there, but really the substance was my hand. That was what made things. The shadow was just kind of a, a, an incomplete picture of what was really there. There's the shadow and then the substance. If you've been here with us at all in the book of Exodus, you've heard us talk about this almost every week. This book, I think probably more than any other book in the Old Testament, is full of these pictures, full of these shadows. It is all over the place where these things pop up, where you see an incomplete picture in the Old and a completer, completed picture in the New. If you, if you remember when we started this, we used the terms type and antitype. Do you remember going over that, talking about that? The type is in the Old Testament. The antitype is in the New Testament. The, the type is the, the, the incomplete picture uh, revealed. The antitype is the completed picture uh, I- explained and fully communicated. We've seen this over and over and over again, especially as we start to move toward the end of this book. It's a picture that points us forward to somewhere else. And what we're going to see today in Exodus 33 is a pretty remarkable text and one that will give us a picture, teach us much, and then point us to an even greater picture, as amazing as the one is that we will see. So just to reset the scene, God has told Moses to go ahead, to take the land that has been promised. He said, Moses, you guys have, pro- you guys have been promised this. I told you you could have it. Uh, in light of what's happened with the golden calf and how the calf has died, in light of all of that stuff, uh, I'm not going to go with you, but you can still have the land. You can still fr- feel free to go forward to the land, but I'm not going to go with you. So you remember that was the scene that we, that we saw a couple of weeks ago. And Moses says, look, we would really love to have the land and we appreciate the promise and we appreciate what you have, uh, you have offered to us. But God, if you don't go, we don't go. We will not go without you because we know it is you that makes us distinct, not the land. Every nation has land, but not every nation. In fact, no other nation has God. No other nation has Yahweh. So he says, I'm not going anywhere without you. We are staying here. They needed God to go with them. And then this is how God answers them in verse 17. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do for you have found favor in my sight and I know you by name. So that was the, that's the scene. That's the setting. It says, I'm, I'm, we're not going anywhere without you, God. God says, okay, fine. I'll go with you. After much, much prayer, much discussion, much that goes on there, he says, I'll go. After all this intercession, uh, God responds to Moses' prayer and says he will do what he has asked. And there's a whole sermon there about prayer that I'm not even going to be able to get into. Uh, but he says, I'll, I'll go. I'll do what you've asked, Moses. And God says, okay. But then... Moses decides to double down and to push things even further. It wasn't enough to get the promised land. 
And now it's not even enough that God would go with them. Moses has another request of God, a bold request of God that is really kind of amazing even to see. After God has been gracious enough to say, I will go with you, Moses says, I've got one more thing for you, God. And as if he hasn't stuck his neck out enough, he asks this one next request. Verse 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Now there's a lot loaded into just those few words right there that we won't fully be able to expound or, or open up today, but there's a lot that's there. What does that even mean to say, show me your glory? What did Moses have in mind there? What is it that, that Moses is really asking for? We don't know exactly what it is that he's asking for, but we know how God's going to answer it. And God's going to say, this is what my glory uh, looks like. I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. So Moses uh, makes this request, ups the ante, uh, and he says, I need even more here. He says, show me your ways. This is what we saw a couple of weeks ago. He says, go with us. So kind of escalating things. But now he makes the, the biggest and the boldest request so far to see God's glory. Now Moses knows this is a big deal. This is not one of those things that Moses kind of asks innocently and kind of ignorantly and then realizes, oh wait, maybe this was a bigger question than I thought it was. He knows this is a big ask because of everything that has happened so far, the great lengths that God has gone in order to shield humanity from seeing this. He's hidden himself in a cloud. He's hidden himself in a burning bush. He has given detailed instructions of the tabernacle and how to approach him via the tabernacle and how only certain people could come into certain places at certain times. And then God would show up on the mercy seat. But even then, it would be not fully in his full glory. It would be somehow veiled and, and shrouded. And he's gone on and on, given extensive warnings about the perimeter that would be set, set up around Mount Sinai whenever Moses would go up saying, don't go past this perimeter because if you do, you're going to die because you can't handle being anywhere close to me. So over and over and over, what we've seen is that God has, has laid these things out that are kind of, uh, just kind of protecting Israel from seeing the full picture of who God is. And little by little, he's revealed more of himself through his law and through different, different things and, and through the tabernacle and given ways that you can approach him. But still, it's, it's a distance that is intentionally kept between man and between God. God repeatedly goes out of his, goes out of his way to hide himself from humanity. And he does this for their own good because he knows they will die in his presence. And so he has protected them. And then Moses comes and he says, God, I want to see your glory. Now, while we don't fully know what that means, we know that God is going to answer this request. We don't know what Moses is asking for. Does it mean that, that, that Moses is wanting to just see God with his eyes? Is that what he means whenever he says this? To see him in all his glory, as it were. You know, that's kind of the, the English phrase, to, to see something in all its glory. Is that what Moses is asking? Well, what we know is that that's going to be at least a part of it. But that's not all of it. God gives a much fuller picture, a much fuller idea of what his glory is. 
He's going to do this through three different things. He's going to affirm his glory through three different aspects of who he is. One, through his sovereignty. Two, through his majesty. And three, through his mercy. So sovereignty, majesty, and mercy. So the first one, sovereignty. Look at how God responds to Moses' request in verse 19. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's Yahweh. Remember, Chris talked to us about that all the way back at the burning bush. And he says, I will, I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. Now, that seems like a, an odd thing for God to reply back. God, Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, I am Yahweh, and I'll show mercy on whoever I want to. That doesn't seem like what we, like, if you're saying, show me your, your glory, let me see you in all your glory, God, it doesn't seem like a natural response for God to come back and say, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. It doesn't really add up because our categories for glory aren't quite the same as the ones that God gives us. So even if Moses did have in mind that he wanted to see God in all his glory, God answers by saying, if you want to know what makes me glorious, the first thing you need to know is my name and my character. The first thing you need to know is my name and my character. And what follows is an exchange that's very similar to the initial inter interaction that Moses had with God in the burning bush. God reminds him of his name, Yahweh. Do you remember this in the burning bush? He said, I am that I am. You remember that whenever we covered that? that he, he comes, he, 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 they have this interaction. God calls Moses and Moses said, if I go to Pharaoh, who am I to tell them sent me? What is your, what is your name? Who should I tell them sent me? And God said, I am that I am. God reminds them of his name, Yahweh, and then he makes this, this similar statement. Just like he said, I am that I am, now he says, I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy to whom I will show mercy. So the first time when God says, I am that I am, God is saying, I exist fully independent of anything outside of myself. God is saying, I don't need anything else to be. I simply am. This is what he said in the burning bush. We, we covered this a, a while back now, but this is the first thing he says is, I don't need anything else to exist. I am that I am. I exist because I exist, and I need nothing else to help me to exist. And now he says, I will do what I will do. And nothing outside of me is needed for me to make those choices or to determine those choices. I am self-sufficient. I am self-existent, and I am also self-determining. You say, wow, that's, that's a lot of big stuff there. What does that really matter? We're talking about God. Listen, you need to understand, if God is not any of those things, he's not God. If God needs something else to exist, he's not God. If he needs something else in order to sustain him, he's not God. And if he's dependent upon you or me or anything else for him to make a choice, He's not God. You are. You are the one that's in control of that situation. But what God is saying is I don't need anything to exist and I don't need anything in order for me to do what I want. I exist because I exist and I do whatever I want because I'm God. 
This is what he tells Moses. I will do what I will do. Friends, we cannot get around this this morning. We cannot hedge on this. If we hedge on this, we lose the majesty, we lose the glory of God. Because he ceases to be God if he's dependent upon us. Friends, if you're here this morning and God has shown you mercy, it is not because you decided to ask him into your heart. It's because he chose to do so. And then when he showed you mercy, you responded to that and you said, I need that mercy. If God has shown us mercy, it's because he chose to show us mercy. He shows mercy to whomever he wills, and nothing outside of him determines who will receive that mercy. And that, by his own definition here, is part of what makes him glorious. He is fully sovereign. We are fully at his mercy. He is the one that is in control, and that is at least in part, part of what makes him worthy of worship. So that's the first piece of God's glory that is affirmed by God whenever he says this. So that's the first thing is his sovereignty. And that sets up the second thing that is about to happen, his majesty. Look with me in verse 20. Exodus 33, verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So God lays out how this is going to go down. He says, you want to see my glory first? You need to understand how sovereign I am. The next thing is, is that I'll let you see this, so, so you'll get it through knowledge, but then you'll also get it through what you see with your own eyes. He says, all right, Moses, here's how this is going to work. I'll remove the cloud that's been protecting you. I'll remove the perimeter that has safeguarded things for you, that have been shielding me from you, and that have been protecting you. But I can't simply just step out of the cloud and say, here I am, because Moses, you will die on the spot. I am so utterly different from you. I am so radiantly holy. If I were to step out from this cloud, you would be nothing in a moment. Friends, we don't understand how utterly different God is than us. Jordan said that this morning. His differentness is something we cannot fully comprehend. This is not a matter of he's a good guy and he's going to let me be in his presence because he's, you know, he's, he's just going to allow us to be there. You know, we, we have some idea of power and what it would mean to, to go in and to, uh, uh, and, and, and to be in, in the face of power, but this is a totally different level. I've heard some people talking about what it's like to meet the queen. Like you're not allowed to talk to the queen until the queen speaks to you first. And so that either makes things super not awkward because you're just waiting on her or make things really awkward because you're just like standing there next to her, but you can't say, hey, what's up? How's it going? Because she's got to say, hi, how are you? And whatever her prim English accent and all that other stuff, she's got she's to do it first, right? There's something about the power and the greatness of being in front of royalty or being in front of a monarch, but this is a whole different level. God is utterly different. He's not just you, but better. 
He's not just all your good things, but better. He's not just all your, you, you, you know, your, your best moments, but better. You know, all your power, but more powerful. All your strength, but stronger. That's not God. God is utterly different than you. To the point that if he were to show up, you would be nothing. You wouldn't be nothing like, oh, woe is me, I am ruined like Isaiah is. You would be nothing as in like you would be gone. And this is what, what, what God says, I can't just show up like this, Moses, but here's what we're going to do. I'm going to put you in this rock. And when I put you in this rock, you, you're, you're going you're gonna to go there, you're going to go in this rock. So even, even in this, in kind of graciously allowing something to happen, there's still all these kind of restrictions and rules on Moses for his protection. But I'm going to put you in this rock, this effectively a cave that you're going to go in. And, and after I put you in this cave, I'm going to kind of pass by. And as I pass by, you can just get a glimpse of me as I walk away. Just of my back, just as I walk away, just kind of a fleeting glance as I pass by. That's, I'll, I'll let you see that, Moses. You can just see that, that little bit. And then Moses is able to do that. He's able to catch this glimpse of God's glory. And he beholds the glory of God, even in this, this kind of passing sense, this fleeting sense of the, the, the back of God, he's able to behold him. Now, where behold is important, and Paul will explain later to us why that is so important. But for now, we just need to see that God allows Moses to see his glory through his sovereignty, and then by simply allowing Moses to behold, to look on him, to see him, to get some idea of how radiant and how utterly different he is. Now, as this happens, something happens to Moses, but he doesn't even know it's happened. Something happens to him externally that he doesn't even realize has happened. The narrative goes on, and Moses simply follows a few of God's commands to effectively rewrite the Ten Commandments. So this section just kind of ends. Like, he passes by, Moses sees, sees God as he passes by, just kind of sees him from behind. And then, then God kind of reshields himself and comes back to Moses, says, Moses, write down these Ten Commandments. Remember, the Ten Commandments were busted and, and, and were broken whenever the, the whole incident happened with the golden calf. And so God comes back and says, here, rewrite these commandments down. They kind of go back through the Ten Commandments again, go back through the idea of covenant and all that's happened there. And, and he starts to, to, to write all this down. This will take you through a lot of the end of 33 and, and some of 34. And, but, but something has happened to Moses that he doesn't even realize has happened. And then we get to verse 34, or to chapter 34. And we see the third thing. We see the third thing that God lays out as it relates to his glory. So the first is his sovereignty, the second is his majesty, and the third is his mercy. So Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. After God has laid out the Ten Commandments again, or the commandments again, had Moses write these things down, we get to verse 5. And then the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. So God expounds a bit on what he told Moses earlier. Earlier he had told Moses that he would have mercy on whomever he wanted. But when he said that earlier, there was no promise that that would be for anyone. Right? So you see that? Whenever he says, I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy, there's no promise that he'll have mercy on anyone. It just kind of puts it out there saying, I'm sovereign, I'm in control of who I divvy this mercy out to, but I make no promises that I divvy it out to anyone. Because I'm under no obligation to show mercy to anyone. And this is important for us to remember this morning. We've gathered here this morning to worship. And that is right that we should do so. We've gathered here to worship because we have been redeemed by a God who loves us and who has shown us mercy and has extended that mercy to us. That is the right thing for us to do here this morning. But if God had, had chosen to never show any one of us mercy, if he had decided that no one would receive mercy, that there would be no churches, that there would be no salvation, that there would be no forgiveness of sin, he would still be just as glorious and just as worthy of worship that we give today. There just would be no churches full of people to give it. He would be just as worthy of it. He is worthy of it because he is God. Because it is inherent in him, the glory that is his, is his, whether he shows mercy or not. Now the beautiful thing is that this room has people in it, and that churches all over the world today have people in it that are offering praise and worship because God has chosen to show that mercy. You are here this morning, not because of the offer of mercy, but because he has bestowed mercy upon you. And you have responded to that. So he's worthy of it whether he gives it or not. But the beautiful thing is that he does. The picture we see here is one that God gives us as a part of seeing his glory. That not only is he capable of mercy, that he does in fact offer it. And not only that, that he's, that he's not quick to anger. He's not quick to punishment. He is slow to wrath. He is abounding in love. He is abounding in faithfulness. He is ready to forgive. Now make no mistake about it, God is quick to show that sin has consequences, both for the person who, who participates in the sin and the generations that will follow them. But He is abounding in love and mercy. He is not required to be. He simply is because that is part of who He is. And this morning you may be feeling the effects and the consequences of sin in your life. Perhaps sin that you have committed, perhaps sin committed by someone you've never even met, yet their sin has impacted you. Perhaps it's by someone that you wish could never hurt you, but they still do. Or perhaps it is just simply your own sin, that you are the one, and it is your sin this morning that you feel the weight of. And you need to hear me this morning. God is slow to anger, abounding in love, merciful and gracious. This morning, do not run from him. Do not cower from him, though you would be right to do so were he not merciful. 
Part of the glory of God is that he is merciful. This, friends, is the most glorious news you could ever hear. That God gives mercy. And not only does he give it, he is rich in it. And all you have to do this morning is take hold of that mercy through his son. And that's what I want to see this morning. It's what I want us to be pointed to this morning. You see, after God had done all this for Moses, he now sends Moses back down the mountain. And I can just imagine this scene. Remember, something happened to Moses when he saw God, and Moses didn't even realize it. Moses has been able to do something that no one has done. He's been able to see God and live to tell about it, at least just for a moment, just as he passes by. He's received God's law. He's coming down the mountain. And he's going to deliver it. And then here's the scene when he comes back to his people. Verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him. And Moses talked with them. And afterward, all the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with them in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before, before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil and, until he came out. And when he came out, he told the people of Israel what he was commanded. The people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil back over his face again until he went in to speak with him. So he comes down the mountain. They can't even look at Moses. This is Moses, who, who days or weeks prior had just got a fleeting glimpse of God's back as he walked by. And now he comes down the mountain. They can't even look at him because his face is so bright. They run from him. Moses, just coming back, was now blinding the people of Israel just from the glow on his face. Now, this is not the glow that you get when you get like an unexpected bonus at work. This is not the glow that you get like... A, you hear people say that you get, a, you get a glow whenever you first become pregnant. This is not that kind of glow. This is not what we're talking about where you just, your cheeks are a little bit rosier and you know, things are just a little bit shinier. That's not what we're talking about. This is not the guy that got the girl to say yes to go to prom. He's got an extra little you know, kick in his step. That's not what this is. This is blind you, go get the sunglasses. We can't see anything, Moses. Get out of our face because you're blinding us type of thing. And it's kind of a crazy story. But the really cool thing is that Paul preached like a whole sermon on this exact text. And so instead of me trying to explain to you what we make out of the fact that Moses' face was, was shining, I'm just going to let Paul preach this sermon for you this morning because he can say it far better than I can. And I want to challenge you to make this passage as you study this week. It's in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. So if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I want to challenge you to study this passage this week, to meditate on it, to think through all the implications that come through this passage that I can't even touch this morning. It is so, so rich. There are a few things that I want to be able to highlight. So 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 4. 
Paul is preaching and he's talking about Moses and this whole story that we just read. And he says, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not to the letter of the Spirit, not to the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, we've talked about what Paul is referring to right here almost weekly for the last couple of months. We are now a part of a new covenant, which renders the old one, the one we've been looking at in the book of Exodus, not obsolete, but fading away. Not gone, but fulfilled and now different in the new covenant. And we are now ministers of this covenant, is what Paul is telling us. And he's going to draw out a key distinction between the two. And don't miss this. The old covenant is the one that that Moses has been laying out, that we've studied for almost a year now. And what he says is that this old covenant did nothing to give life. In fact, it did just the opposite. It brought death. Because it taught us what sin was and how, how far we fall short of the glory of God. Remember what we said is that the, the, the old covenant, the law, was like an MRI. It has no power to heal us, but it can reveal to us all the things that are broken. But now, we are not bound to a law that brings death, the old covenant. But in the new covenant, we have a spirit. In fact, we have the spirit that brings us life. Look with me in verse 7. And see how Paul expounds on this. Now, if the ministry of death, it's an interesting way to refer to the Old Testament law and the Old Testament covenant, this thing that, that Moses so gloried in, Paul says, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, Will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? Do you catch what he's saying there? If this Old Testament carved in the letters of stone was so glorious, they couldn't even look at Moses, what do you think this covenant's all about? It is far more glorious. For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, that was verse 9, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to give no glory at all. So this thing that, that once was such a glorious thing has no glory in it anymore at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what, much more will what is permanent have glory. His point is clear here. What Moses got to see and be a part of made his face shine like the sun, and it's nothing compared to what you and I are a part of. It's nothing compared to what the Spirit does inside of you and the conviction of, and, and, and the, the, the conviction of righteousness that the Spirit gives us, the leading the Spirit has of us, that God himself would live within us. It's nothing. What Moses had was nothing compared to that. It is a shadow, a grainy picture. But what we know today through Jesus Christ and through the ministry and the, of the, the, the indwelling of the Spirit blows away what Moses had. <clears throat> Moses' face may have shone like the sun, but he had no idea of what was coming. Verse 12. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses who would have put a veil over his face so that the Israelites may not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. 
but their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So incidentally, who turns to the Lord? The one upon whom God has mercy. And he will have mercy on whom he has mercy. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Such a beautiful picture of the Trinity right here in these verses. It is so rich. Verse 18, the capstone. Read it again. With All with unveiled face. No veil needed like Moses had. And do you understand why we don't need a veil? Because in the, the, the economy of God and in the, under the blood of Christ, we are not sinful men like Moses. We have the righteousness of Christ because of Jesus Christ. We have him because of his blood shed for us. So we don't need a veil to, to protect us whenever we see the glory of God because we have the Spirit in us and are covered by the blood of Christ. Not because we are great and righteous, but because Jesus has made us that way through his blood. So we have an unveiled face being transformed from glory to glory. We don't need a veil because we are in a very real sense far greater than Moses ever was. And now it goes on to say that we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. But do you see what the catalyst is for the transformation in verse 18? It says we're being transformed, but do you see what the catalyst is for the transformation? It says beholding the glory of the Lord. This is Paul's argument he's making here. Our transformation happens when we behold the glory of God. I wish I could spend the next hour walking through Scripture looking at this one word, behold. It is a powerful study. Friends, transformation doesn't happen by checking our Christian checklist. If you have no power in your Christian life, but you are doing everything you think you're supposed to be doing, perhaps it's because you are checking a list. But listen, it doesn't happen by simply showing up and doing what we're supposed to do. It doesn't happen by showing up on Sunday, listening to the preacher, walking away, and then coming back next Sunday and hoping that you get another kind of spiritual supercharge every Sunday morning. Transformation doesn't happen through doing every Bible study you can and gaining all the information that you can. Transformation happens when you behold the glory of God. That's it. When we behold Him. And as much as your Bible study helps you to behold him, you will be transformed. But when all it does is give you information, it's just not going to be the same thing. Information is great, but if it doesn't lead you to behold who God is, then it's not going to transform you. Friends, when you take your eyes off yourself, off your problems, off your failures, off your sin, and you behold him, that's when you will be changed from one glory to another. And I love how Paul ends this. He says that it's the Spirit's work that does this. 
He says it is the Spirit's work that does this. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You cannot simply will yourself to do better here. You behold God, and in that beholding, the Spirit will do His work in your heart, and you will be changed. Friends, this is the gospel. This is Christianity. This is the glorious God that we worship. We talk a lot here about our mission statement. Just taught 101 last week, and we walked through this, and we talked about this. Our mission statement here is that we are here to uh, make, grow, and unleash disciples of Christ. To the glory of God, we are here to make, grow, and unleash disciples of Christ. That process of making a disciple, along with what follows discipleship, is a process that begins and continues on the basis of beholding God. So whenever somebody says, whenever we say that we are, we are making disciples here, we are not making good rule followers. That is not a disciple. If all we do here is make rule followers, we have not made disciples, we have made Pharisees. We are not here to make rule followers. We are here to behold God. And to the degree to which you can behold God and you can see his glory and you can stare at him and you can say, God, I am insufficient. I need to be in Christ because I see who you are. To the degree that you can do that, you will be transformed. That is discipleship. That is what it means to be a follower of Christ, to behold him in his glory, to behold the work of the spirit in your heart, to behold the work of the father as he as he loves us and as he orchestrates this, to behold all of the Trinity at work in all of those things. That's a disciple. And all of life, all of life, is simply a matter of doing that better and less distracted and seeing God clearer and clearer. That's our objective here. That's our mission. That's what we want. That's how discipleship begins, and that is the entirety of the Christian life. So this morning, this is what we do. We, wanna, we want to behold the goodness, the holiness, the worthiness of God. And every Sunday when I get up here to preach, that's what I want to do. I want you to behold the, glory, the, the glorious, gloriousness, is that a word? I guess it is. The gloriousness of God. That's what I want you to do. So I don't stand up here and give you a to-do list very often. I don't stand up here and say, here's four ways to a happy Christian life. Because you can do those things, and you can, might be a little bit happier. But we're here for disciples. We're here to worship God in his gloriousness. Will you pray with me? Father, what a beautiful picture you give us. We thank you for your word, where you show us a picture of who you are. We thank you for uh, the, the writing and the teaching of Paul who expounds on that, who clarifies that for us, who allows us to see truly the beautiful thing. We thank you that even this thing that Moses had that, that made his face to, to shine is something that is far surpassed through your son and through your spirit. 
So Father, this morning, help us to behold you. Help us to see you for who you are. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.